0: Before I get started, I want to let you know about a few upcoming programs. This year's public program series, Intersection, Spirit of the Times with the Spirit of the Depths, begins on October 4th with They Had a Dream, We Have a Dream, C.G. Young, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Evocative Power of Symbols, with Jennifer Lee Selig, Ph.D. The series continues in November with The Myth of Athena and Arachne, Confronting Male Entitlement, Rediscovering the Negated Feminine, with Diane Sherwood, Ph.D. In January, with Exploring the Tarot as a Tool for Individuation, with Ken James, Ph.D. And in February, with Death Panels, Our Cultural Complex Around Death, with Daniel Ross, RN, PMHNP. We will also be having Thomas Moore, the uh, speaker in this episode, visit us in October for two days, and I'll give more information about that as I introduce his lecture today. to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Thomas Moore on Aging Soulfully. Thomas Moore will be visiting us in October to lead a two-day seminar, for which registration is now open. As an introduction to Moore's perspective and voice, we are sharing the first hour of his previous workshop with us, Cultivating Soul which included two parts. Part one, Ageless Soul. Thomas More speaks about the themes of his book, Ageless Soul, and engages in conversation with attendees and Jungian analysts. Ageless Soul offers positive and inspiring guidance for becoming a full person as time goes by. Since we are all aging, it is for anyone who has ever thought about getting older. And part two, Care of the Soul in Troubled Times. For all of our problems, our times are in many ways better than the past. Throughout history, much has been achieved creatively in very troubled times. This is a time to resist the culture, contemptus mundi, and live your own life of excellence and beauty. It is a time to assume leadership for change and returning to eternal values. Study the best of lives in our past and be inspired toward creativity and excellence. This seminar was recorded on October 28, 2017. Thomas Moore, PhD, is the author of nearly two dozen books on deepening spirituality and cultivating soul in every aspect of life. His book, Care of the Soul, was a number one New York Times bestseller. Well known within the Jungian community, he has been a monk, musician, a university professor, and a psychotherapist. He lectures frequently in Ireland and has a special love of Irish culture. He has a PhD in religion from Syracuse University and has won several awards for his work, including an honorary doctorate from Lesley University and the humanitarian award from Einstein Medical School of Yeshiva University. He writes fiction and music and often works with his wife, artist, and yoga instructor Hari Karim. Much of his recent work has focused on the world of medicine, speaking to nurses and doctors about the soul and spirit of medical practice. More about him can be found at ThomasmoreSoul.com. Links for the full seminar will be available in the show notes, as well as a link to register for Moore's upcoming workshop, An Enchanted Life, on October 18th at the Tao Center in Wheaton, and October 19th at Venue 610 in Chicago. CE credits are available for both days. For more information about that program, visit our website, youngchicago.org. For
1: the first thing I want to tell you is, uh, sort of a logistical thing. Um, please call me Thomas or Tom, when we bump into each other today. And, uh, I wanted to just mention to you, I was thinking walking here this morning, that uh, I walked from a hotel down the, down the street, and I walked past DePaul University, and I'm I just full of memories because I spent my 20s pretty much at DePaul University here, downtown, in the Loop in Chicago, in the music school at DePaul. There was a time when I thought I'd be a musician, and uh, I, I really worked hard at it. And the music school at DePaul was quite uh, demanding and challenging. I learned a great deal there. And then I went on to the University of Michigan Music School. And somehow music is still with me. Uh, my friend Hillman used to say that I can write books because I was trained as a musician. I'm not sure what he meant, but <laughs> I keep hearing that in my head as I go. <clears throat> and. Uh, The other thing I want to do before we get underway is uh, I like, I like to start with a story and tell you a little story. I like to tell the Sufi stories. Uh, You probably have heard them. A lot of teachers today like to use these stories about a character named Nasruddin who uh, is a teacher and usually in the stories in a small village. These stories are meant to be teaching stories, spiritual stories. They don't sound like it. So that means you have to work at it. You have to listen. That's why I like these stories, partly, because I don't think we we look under the surface enough. We don't see metaphor everywhere. Everything's a metaphor, everything. There is nothing that is not a metaphor. And it's metaphor that speaks to your soul. It's the poetry. James Hillman called it the poetic basis of mind the poetic basis of mine. So that's why I want to start with a story, partly to put us in the realm of story, which is cousin to the realm of dream, which is so important to the life of the soul. So in this story, uh, Nasruddin is having dinner with one of the leaders of his town. And they're at the table and they've ordered their food. And the waiter brings a platter on which there are two pieces of fish. One is a very large piece and one is a very tiny piece. So as soon as the platter gets close to the table, Nasuddin reaches out and takes the large piece and puts it on his plate. And his companion, who's a a leader in his little village, says, he says, Nasuddin, I'm really disappointed. I'm disillusioned. Uh, You took the largest piece. And now Juddin says, oh, he said, so uh, you would have taken a smaller piece? He said, absolutely, I would have taken the smaller piece. He says, well, here it is. <laughs> uh, there, there are lots, there's a lot to say about that little story. But to one of the reasons I like it is that um, it turns upside down our usual thought that being good people, we should always sacrifice ourselves. That's really a problem. I've run, I see over and over again that I guess most of the people that I encounter are people who uh, want to be the best they can be. And one of their difficulties, most of the people that I run into in this way, is that they sacrifice too much. They, they, they give up too much. They don't really... They don't find a way to be good to others and also good to themselves. And maybe at times to have a little shadow, the shadow that comes from paying attention to yourself, to take that on, to be able to do what you need to do, to live the life you need to to live. So there's a lot in that little story, it seems. I often think of that myself. Whenever I'm giving, giving away a little too much, being too generous, I remember that Nasruddin would take the larger piece. (laughs) So, uh, today, I'd like to talk to you a little bit, first of all, about this new book of mine, Ageless Soul. And um, by the way, that's not my title. The publisher came up with that title. (laughs) I was writing a book called Aging with Soul for a long time, but you know, <laughs> publishers know better. So, so um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that, about aging, and then uh, we can have a conversation with us, and in my experience, it will range beyond aging, which is fine. We can talk about anything we like today. And then uh, we'll have a break. And then maybe we might continue. I don't know, really. Uh, I mean, we are improvising, right? Yeah, all the time. We're always improvising. So, uh, And then sometime in the afternoon, I'd like to talk to you about um, how, to, how to get along in this time when so many people are upset and disturbed by what's happening in the world. So that, that's a big topic, not an easy one, but I think it's worth talking about. So the first thing is about aging. So the, obviously, I don't have to say this to you, this is what I say in bookstores everywhere I go these days. When I talk about aging, I'm not so interested in Talking to you about, I'm not going to talk to you about taking care of your finances. <laughs> um, or uh, even about taking care of your health or the health issues that we have to deal with. These are, all, these are two very important areas. and um, I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to get some advice, believe me, on those two things. But our topic today is to talk about aging as we experience it. And try to go deeper into the experience of what it is to get older. Or I should say, what it is to age. Because I'm using the word age, to age, the verb, differently than we sometimes use it. I think we use the word to age in a couple different ways. One way is to say you're getting older. You say, I'm aging. You mean I'm growing older, adding years. That's not what I want to talk to you about. There's another way that we age, and that is that we get riper, we mature, we get better, hopefully. We become somebody, we become more of ourselves. And I think maybe we could become more human. We could develop our humanity as well as our individuality. So those are, that's, those are the things that I have in mind when I think of aging. So I'd like you to join me with that if you could. It doesn't mean that we're avoiding this idea of getting older, that's part of it. But the curious thing is that as everybody knows and everybody says, we're all aging no matter what, age, what how many years we have, we're all aging. Our children are aging. Just this week, uh, a friend of, of my family, friend of ours, my family members, uh, had a, she's a young woman, uh, probably 26 or so. She has a little girl, six years old, and just found out this week that she has leukemia or lymphoma. We're not sure yet which. So here's this little girl, six years old, going through this, these processes in the hospital right now of being examined, and like she had a bone marrow uh, exam the other day and a spinal tap. These are not things that we all have to do, especially not at six. But I was thinking about her, we're obviously very concerned and trying to find out almost by the hour how she's doing, uh, that she is a, a little girl who is aging. She is having the experience that it's aging her quickly, early. Now what she has a pe- probably is, has a good cure rate, so we're hoping that she will be fine. So as she grows up, she will refer back in her, in her life as she goes from stage to stage to this experience she's having at six years old. She's aging, so she has an experience that, that initiates her further into what it is to be a human being, that people get sick. They can be really sick, that people have to face their, their mortality and sometimes quite early. I had an experience like that and I write about it in this book. When I was four years old, I I used to go with my grandfather, my father's father, to a lake. I grew up in Detroit, I was born in Detroit, and we used to go to this lake outside the city and go fishing or just rowing, uh, usually on Sunday afternoon. And one time we went to a larger lake, Lake St. Clair, which is a big lake. Canada's on the other side of it, and you can't see across the lake, big waves. I always found it kind of scary, even now. But my grandfather and I were in the boat, and we don't know what happened, but all my memory is I, I suddenly see the boat filling with water, and then the boat capsizes, turns over on its, you know, it's upside down. And my grandfather's holding me up on the capsized boat, and I can could, I could still see water going into his mouth and face. And I see all these things that were in the boat floating around me, and he's holding me up and saving my life. And he died, he drowned at that moment. And I remember waking up, I was in this bed, a big bed, I'd never been in this bed before. You know, I'm a little kid, four years old. And the sheets are stretched across my shoulders like I've never experienced before. And I heard someone in the room say, Undertaker. So I thought I had died. And I thought, this is what it means to be dead. You're in this bed with these sheets tight around your shoulders. I've never had that before. But for me, that, that moment, too, was an aging process. I've often wondered, I mean very often in my life, I've wondered just what an impact that has had on me. My family tells the story the way they would. I came from an Irish Catholic family, and their story is that I was saved to do some work. That my grandfather saved me so that I could be around to do the work that I have to do. But what I'm saying is that for me, that is that that touch with death and mortality, is also an aging uh, moment. It's one of those moments that affects you forever, and, and that puts a mark on you. Now I may not have had another experience that aged me. Maybe for my guess is what four, thirteen. Um, another uh, nine years before another experience came along. So this is the way I imagine aging. We are going through our lives, and we, we have experiences that stand out, that have an impact on us, that have a quality of initiation. By initiation, I mean it's like you, you, are, you go through an experience that might be a bit frightening or painful, usually, could be happy, but often there's a little pain somewhere, and it takes you to the next stage of your life. And that may last quite a while. So that's, that's uh, an image of aging that I am working with. And I read in Emerson, Emerson says that uh, that we don't progress in a straight line in our lives. We don't just grow starting at the beginning and then grow gradually, grow up. He says, rather, we go, we progress by an ascension of state. An ascension of state. I mean, he's writing the 19th century. He would use a phrase like that. So he, I think what he means is that we ascend, but then we're at a plateau for a while till the next experience comes along that really affects us. Do you know, maybe you know this, that in many, uh, Uh, what would you call them, Um, traditional societies? I mean, people who live like in the forest, the rainforest, and places like that, and in Australia. Uh, In these traditional societies, uh, people have rituals that help people go from one phase to another. And those rituals usually involve a little bit of pain. Not necessarily a lot of pain, but pain. The Greeks had some uh, rituals like this where uh, there, was a, there was some pain, they might be, be hit lightly by a stick. When I've, I was raised Catholic, as I said, and I was confirmed, that's a sacrament of confirmation, and the bishop slaps you on the face lightly. I expected a big slap, but it was just a tap. But that is sort of a ritual infliction of pain there's pain somehow the idea is that when you go from one state to another when you age when you have a moment of aging there might be some pain involved and more than that in some societies the young people who are going through an initiation let's say into adulthood might actually be buried in the ground for a while or sometimes just covered with leaves and th- the idea is that they have died and they are in the ground, they are dead and buried, and then they come to life and enter the community. So there's a kind of death-life aspect. And you see, that's, that's my story and that's the story of my li- little friend with leukemia now. It's, in a, it's getting close to death. And that is initiating It does something to you. And I bet we could have lots of stories there in this room of that kind of thing, that we go through experiences that age us. So it's an interesting thought. There are so many implications. That means that when you do have an illness, let's just talk about illness for a minute, no matter what the illness is, you might think of that illness not just as a physical thing, but you might ask yourself, what is this sickness doing to my soul, to my being, to myself, to the deepest part of me? What is that illness doing to it? Is this an initiation for me? Is this, is this a little touch with mortality, even if it's only small that you think about it? Am I going to get through this? Is this more serious than I'm thinking? You know, how you, the thoughts you have when you get sick? You get, might be nervous about it, anxious about it, concerned about the test results you get, that kind of thing. That too is like an initiation, kind of taking us along, aging us. So, on the one hand, they're not very nice experiences, and I'm not recommending them to you. But on the other, they actually do something good for your soul, if you can only participate at that level and let that happen. Be open to the possibility that you will be transformed and changed and affected by what's happening. That's why it seems to me in our hospitals, we so badly need uh, guides, people present in our hospitals, who understand these things and could help us go through the initiations of sickness. So I've been spending the past what? I think 25 years, visiting hospitals, attending uh, medical conferences. I go to these medical conferences. I've been doing it for so long now. Um, And I'm usually the last person to speak. You know, after all the technical talks are given, sometimes, you know, people talk all day long. They're one after another with slides and pointers and all this information being given, which is fine. And then they bring me in, and I don't have anything to show them. You know, I don't have anything to point to. <laughs> but what I talk about is the experience of being sick, and how our nurses and doctors, because we have no other people except maybe chaplains. Of course, I work a lot with chaplains. Um, we don't have though. We don't have other people though to take care of, or, or we're not training our nurses and doctors to address the soul of the sick person or the soul of the caretaker. So we've got to do that work. And that's what I spent a lot of time doing. But that's also aging. So the people who are doing that work, working in hospitals and so on, this is just a small piece of it, but it's one area where we could help people age. And I think in hospitals in particular, that's uh, and that's where we we really do go through initiations where we age. I remember, I'll never forget one in particular, one patient that I talked to. I visited his room, and uh, he was he had so many wires connected to his body, and there were about seven nurses and technicians in his little room when I arrived. And. Uh, I told him, I said, I could come back later. He said, oh, no, stay here. This is the time. I need you right now. So I, I stayed with him while he was being treated. And it was kind of an interesting moment. But what I wanted to tell you about it is that he told me something I've heard from many patients in hospitals. He said, he said I, 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 did, I, don't want, I didn't want to have this sickness. I don't want it. I wish it had never happened. But he said, you know, it healed me. This sickness healed me because, he said, I was not such a good character before I got sick. He said, I was ignoring my family. I was all caught up in my work in a a way that didn't do any good. And now I'm sick and I'm lying here and all all I have is time to think. And I'm thinking about being sick and my life might be threatened at this moment. And he said, I'm being healed, healed minute by minute as I lied lie here. I'm so glad that he said it because it's something I might have said, but it's meant so much coming from this person who was in that particular position. And as we were talking, the people in the room were making comments about his heart condition and treating him like he was this case, not talking to him as a person and not being sensitive to the fact that he was hearing them discuss it his life. They were, they were saying things like, I wonder how long he can survive this heart, things like that, <laughs> while he's in the room, but they're talking to each other. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done just in that sphere of culture alone, medicine, huge amount. And it's one of the most important areas we have, because in a way, medicine is our portal to the soul. It's a portal to the soul, an important one. So you see what I mean by aging? It's, it's not a simple thing. And it's, it just doesn't happen, if I can repeat this now, it doesn't happen by just spending time and moment after moment you're getting older. It comes at particular moments. There's particular times that are important to you. It's important in those times to talk to somebody that you can talk to sincerely and meaningfully. Because after all, everyone in this room is a therapist. We are all therapists to each other. Let me tell you a little bit about that for a minute. I love this theme of psychotherapy. And whether you're a therapist or not in this room, I wanna talk to you about it for a minute. So let me just mention this word psychotherapy to you, psychotherapy. There are two Greek words, psychotherapy, two common, uh, well-known, often used Greek words. The first one is psyche. I can't say it just right. My Greek friends are always correcting my pronunciation. I can't never do it right. But it's something like psyche. p-s-y-c-h-e. And the Greek word means soul. That's the primary meaning of that word, soul. There is some sense that it it starts out in its very early form as having to do with breath or life. But most commonly, it is used for soul. It is not the mind, it's not the body, it's not behavior, it's nothing like that, it's soul. So all of our psych words are soul words, psychology, psychotherapy, psychometrics, whatever word you want to use, it's all soul, psyche. So a psychologist is somebody who is interested in the meaning of soul. I mean, that's, that's what the word says. It's not how we do it today, but that's, that's what it means. So if any of you are doing psychology, please remember that. And the word psychotherapy, the word therapy means service or care. It does not mean heal, cure, fix, repair, make better. It doesn't mean any of those things in its original use of the word. It's been translated as cure. If you read the New Testament, the Gospels, that that word is used over and over again some form of therapy. That word is used frequently. It's usually translated as cure. Jesus cured this person, cured that person. But the classical meaning of that word is to care for. So I've translated the Gospels recently. They're just coming out now. There are two volumes out. And when I translate therapy, the word therapy, I translate it as care for. Jesus cared for the sick. Anyway, psychotherapy means to serve the soul or care for the soul. That's what the word psychotherapy means. So you can all do that, and we all do it, don't we? If you're a friend of somebody who's going through something, you are being the soul caretaker for the moment. You're being the therapist in that broader sense of the word. You know, you're not not saying come into my office, that'll be hundred and forty dollars an hour you're not saying that but you are relating to your friend or maybe your child or a relative of yours or someone you're visiting in the hospital you are the therapist I think it's a good idea to think about that you're doing psychotherapy you're doing you're doing service for that person's soul That's what psychotherapy means. You're doing that when you're listening to them tell their story. That's what therapists do anyway. You're listening to the person tell their story. That's a generous thing to do, to to listen to them. And you are letting them know that you care about them by being there. Maybe Maybe you've brought some flowers or a card or something, chocolates something that they're not supposed to have. <laughs> you know, you, you, you bring them something, and that is caring, too. So that's the work of the therapist in you. You can think about that. Be the therapist for certain people in your life. I don't mean, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying analyze everybody. No, not that. Not that literal notion of, the old notion of therapist that way. We don't want to analyze or don't give advice. A good therapist doesn't give advice, you know. When you're training therapists and they start out by giving advice, you know you have some work to do. So it's not advice giving at all. But what you're doing is you're caring for that person's soul, using your imagination, doing it in your own way. The way that really makes sense to you. Caring for the person around you. That's psychotherapy. Psychotherapy. And if anyone asks you what you're doing, just tell them you're doing a little therapy and that if you tell them if they're a little confused, just get a Greek dictionary and you'll figure it out. Psychotherapy as helping a person go through something. And so in that way too, we can help each other age well. How How do you help somebody age? But you notice if they're going through something that you, you assist, you're with them, you listen. You're the companion, you're with them, that's the first thing. You're with them, you listen. They're very simple things, aren't they? To listen. When I was uh, being trained to be a therapist, the first training I had was Rogerian training, which is client-centered therapy which means that you learn to listen very well. That's the first thing. Carl Rogers thought that was the most important thing, is that you are with your client, you're listening carefully to what they say. And you're not thinking what what you want to have in your mind, you're listening to them. You're not telling them things, you're not telling them what you think they need, you're listening to them. And the second thing you do, Carl Rogers said is, You let the person know that you're listening and that you've heard. That's pretty good. This is also care of the soul by listening. I tell this to therapists in training all the time. You ought to read Carl Rogers if if you can't get a training in him, but that's, it's a good stage in your therapeutic training to learn how to listen very well and how to let people know that they're being heard. That's a great skill. A lot of people make fun of Carl Rogers by just repeating the same words that the person has just said. You know, someone says, I'm really feeling down today. And you say, you're really feeling down. (laughs) Well, you can do it that way. It actually works quite well. Do you know, uh, uh, there was a fellow, I forget his name now, Joe something, at uh, MIT made a a program, a a computer program called Eliza. I mean, years and years ago, a long time ago, I mean, absolutely primitive computers. And I, I, I met him once, and we were talking about it, and he let me be the patient for his program. And the program is so simple, I'm sure they have much more complicated ones today, but the one he created, you would just say something to the computer, you'd, you'd just type it in, you'd say, like I said, I'm, I'm feeling a little anxious today. And the computer would say, you're telling me that you're feeling anxious. And then you'd go on, and it kept going in that vein. And I really felt great after it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all you have to do, really, at the basic level, is let people know that you're being heard. You can be more subtle about it, and you can, you can go further. You can, let, you can hear things that the person is saying that they don't hear. You know what that means? someone is saying something and they don't even know they're saying it, but you pick it up and you let them know that you've heard that, that's really advanced Carl Rogers. You can go beyond just the uh, mimicking what they say. So there's a way in which we can help each other age. And I'm talking about all ages now. Our children as well, help them age. And I think this is also a secret to aging. If we can do our aging well when we're four and five years old, we're going to be in great shape when we're 80. Because the therapists in this room I know, the analysts here know that when you talk to older people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, very often the issues that they're dealing with at that moment go back to when they were four and five and 10 years old. It's amazing. How direct the connection is between your 90s and your tens. It's it's direct, it's still there. And it seems to me that what we do when we age, when we when we go through our years, when we get older, we don't just have experiences in our tens and, and teens. We don't just have those experiences and they go by and they're put in this memory archive somewhere. I think that those experiences stay with us. They're with us live, alive and active every moment afterwards. So your youth is always with you. It's active without even thinking today. I bet you everyone in this room has some experience that life that wakens some early period in your life. It's the way life is. That's how it works. We're not just the age of the moment. We're all those ages. There's another aspect of this too that I've, I think is pretty interesting. And, and that is that um, as we age, as we do this, as we collect these, these different uh, years that are with us all the time, Trying to figure out how to put it. Um, It would, it would, uh, it helps us to know what year the, the, what year is working on us right now, where we are today. It looks like we're in the present, but actually, an event. Something going on may take us back to a, an early period in our life. Now, I want to read to you some things. This is from Carl Jung. This is from Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Have you, have you read Memories, Dreams, Reflections of Jung? If you haven't, get a copy today. It's, it's one of the great books that will help you understand what it is to be a human being and how to deal with your experiences. If you wanna know something about Jung, if you haven't studied Jung yet, then I would suggest starting with Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I would not suggest starting with a book that summarizes Jung's thought. They give you a kind of a rational summary of ideas that really don't present the personality of Jung. I would suggest reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and probably reading it two or three times. I can't tell you how many times I've read it, and I'm going to read from it right now, for the zillionth time. So what happened is Jung wrote his auto. Uh, it's not he didn't really write his autobiography. He apparently he he made some notes about his life, and some someone else kind of stitched them together into a book. But for all purposes, it's his autobiographical reflections. And uh, there's a chapter called, Confrontation with the Unconscious, which I think is the most interesting one in the whole book. And he talks there about how in his 30s, he had a breakdown. His life began to fall apart. And he had to figure out what to do, because he was a psychiatrist at a hospital at that time, a major hospital. He had a, it was a very good position. I mean, he says in the little film, you know, the BBC film about Jung, he says in that film, he says if he had lost that position, what could he do? He didn't know what to do. So he didn't want to lose his job, but he was falling apart and he couldn't really do his job well. He didn't know what to do. So let me just read to you some passages about what he says about this. So here he says, the first thing that came to the surface was a childhood memory from perhaps my 10th or 11th year. At that time I had a spell of playing passionately with building blocks. I distinctly recalled how I had built little houses and castles using bottles to form the sides of gates and vaults. Somewhat later I had used ordinary stones with mud for mortar. These structures had fascinated me for a long time. To my astonishment, this memory was accompanied by a great deal of emotion. So notice then, what, he, what he's saying here, is that he is thinking about, carefully about what's going on right now in his life and in his soul, in his psyche. He's very disturbed, he's upset, he doesn't know exactly what to do. Have you been in that position before? What am I going to do? What can I do to get out of this situation? It's not good right now. What can I do? So he thinks about his life and he pays attention. Here's one of the first things to note about with so many lessons in this little, this little story of Jung. The first lesson might be, when you're trying to figure out what to do next, pay close attention to where your imagination goes, where your fantasy goes, what images come to the surface. What images come? That's what Jung did. What came for him? Being a 10 or 11 year old boy. That's what came to the surface. And he took it seriously. And he remembered, he thought about it. What did I do at that age? Well, I played with blocks. I made little villages and towns by the the lakeside with these things. Just a simple memory. But he knows that this image comes to him and it's worth paying attention to and doing something with it. Maybe that's the clue for responding positively and creatively to what's going on with him at that time. And then he says, aha, I said to myself, there is still life in these things. The small boy is still around and possesses a creative life which I lack. Wow, listen to that. The small boy is still around. That's what I'm trying to say to you. He's still there. That 10 year old in you is still there. This is what Jung discovers, he's still around. I can't tell you how many times, maybe thousands of times, I have heard this statement in one way or another that that early person, that the younger person is still around, still having experiences, still complaining, <laughs> still, still, uh, still present. That's really something to think very carefully about in aging. It's not a straight line. We don't just let go of all the past. All those persons we have been are still there. And this is what Jung found. The little, that boy is still around and possesses a creative life, which I lack. Isn't that interesting? So he, he's making a distinction between that boy, that 10-year-old boy, and I. I lack this. That boy was creative, I'm not at the moment. There's a big difference here between I and the boy, even though that boy is me. Now, if you can figure that one out, you're well advanced now, you're moving along toward understanding about aging in a deep way. If you can understand, if you can say a statement like that that seems contradictory, that the boy is me when I was 10, and yet it's not me because I don't have the gifts that boy had at that age. So the conclusion is I better get in touch with that boy because that boy has something for me. What what an important statement for you, all of us now who are becoming therapists in my extended sense of the word, right? So he says, I decided I wanted to reestablish contact with that period. I had no choice but to return to it and take up once more take up once more the child's life with his childish games. The moment was a turning point in my fate, but I gave in only after endless resistances and with a sense of resignation, for it was a painfully humiliating experience to realize that there was nothing to be done except to play childish games." So he realized what he had to do to get back in touch with that boy was to Play the games that he played when he was that age. That was his therapy. And it felt humiliating. And this is something another this point here is one I learned from James Hillman. I'm going to refer to Jim Hillman, James Hillman quite a bit. He was my friend for many years, and I he was a genius of a psychologist. And uh I learned so much just from being around him all those years. And one of the things that he once said, I remember, I never heard him say this publicly, but he once said when we were together, he said that, that in order to get closer to your soul, one of the best ways is to feel inferior. One of the best ways to get close to your soul is to be able to have a feeling of inferiority and be able to hold it, be with it, and not try to run away from it. That was one of these gems that I picked up and have kept close to me in my work as a therapist all these years and in my own personal life. So whenever I'm feeling inferior, which is you know several dozen times a day, I don't know about you. Do you ever have this experience? I have a, the way I have it. My experience is I meet somebody who's read everything. You know, they've read everything, every book that's ever been written. Do you ever have that feeling? And they, they say to you, I have friends who say to me, Oh, Tom, have you read such and such? And I say, No. And, you know, I go down a little bit. And then a little bit later, they say, Oh, you must have read, No. Down a little further. (laughs) So what what Hillman is saying is that, that feeling of inferiority that you sense then is really good for you for your connection to your soul. Because that's where the soul is, down. You don't go down, you don't go into soul by going up. You don't take the up escalator into soul. You take the downward move, the down elevator. This reminds me. I hadn't thought about this, but I remember when I was teaching at SMU. I taught religion there for a number of years, and I, I well, I I worked with dreams a lot with my my or my students, and one time a student came in with a dream that I never forgot. He said he went into the library uh, uh, that was uh, not too far away. He went into the library, the main library, and. Uh, there were elevators there, and he pushed the up button on the elevator, got in the elevator, and went down. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what happens. We are taken into our soul. That's the myth of Demeter, you know? That's the myth of Persephone. Persephone is there picking flowers and just enjoying everything on the surface, and suddenly the earth opens up, and down she goes. Becomes queen of the underworld, where soul is by nature. So... The inferiority. This is what Hillman was saying, that the inferiority takes us down. You don't, you don't give an upward motion with that, do you? You don't say, oh, I feel inferior. <laughs> it's a downward movement. That's how you feel it. And you, you go down into that inferiority, and that's where soul is. It's deep. It's not high. It's deep. So part of aging with soul would be to be able to go deep and have these experiences that might feel inferior, and even as Jung says, humiliating, humiliating. And, and he means that, I'm, I'm sure he means this with a great deal of intensity. This is not a fun experience. His, his, you know, he has to go now and start playing with toys and playing with blocks. It's not what he had in mind after becoming the chief psychiatrist somewhere. Imagine there, he says later, he says that he's playing with his blocks, and then his patients come. Imagine if one of them came early and (laughs) saw him on the floor. Imagine doing that yourself. You go to your, your analyst, your therapist for your session, and there he is doing something like that. You might wonder about him. But if you understand this, you might say, well, yes, we all do this. We all have to do things that are humiliating and uh, initiating to us, really. It's a downward move that ages us. We age downwardly in soul. We age downwardly in soul. He says some other things about this experience that I want to mention to you, too. Give you a taste of this book of his, so you might want to read it. He says I frequently I was so wrought that I had to that I had to do certain yoga exercises in order to hold my emotions in check. And then he says he had to he had to stay close to his daily daily life, like you know, doing the dishes and cleaning up and all that, to be able to stay related to ordinary life because he was going through so much in his inner initiation. A couple more things that he said about this. Oh, yeah, this is, this is complex. I have to read this to you carefully. So as Jung is doing this uh, work on himself, the other thing that happened was that certain figures came to him that he established a relationship with. And one of them is Philemon. And if you want to know about this further, you can look at the Red Book and see paintings that he did of Philemon. So Philemon is there and he says, Philemon and other figures of my fantasies brought home to me the crucial insight that there are things in the psyche which I do not produce. I hope everyone in this room uh, accepts that or understands that. There are things in this psyche that I don't produce. I remember when I was teaching at the university, this was one of the big stumbling blocks. I had so many students who kind of walked out the door when I said that. They said, how can that be? How can there be something in my psyche that I don't make, that I have not created? How can there be something in me that I haven't created? Well, this is the difference between a more Jungian uh, point of view of life or archetypal view of life or soul-centered view of life than the ego-centered view that we have more generally in our society. What, what we understand, those of us who are interested in Jung's work, is that there are things in us that we have not created. There are personalities that are us and not us at the same time. They come to us, they visit us. We have a relationship to them. You might even conclude at the end of all that that we are made of many persons. And you may wonder if there is an ego. Or as Hillman said frequently, the ego is one of the persons. The ego is one of the many persons that we're made up of. And he distinguished between a heroic ego and what he called an imaginal ego. A lot of us think of the ego as a hero. It's going to solve all problems and help us get along in life. And it's going to be in charge, have a lot of muscle. We need, e- we need ego strength. You know, all the, so much of the psychology loves the heroic ego. Hillman said a much better ego would be one that imagines a poetic ego the ego as poet so we go around seeing metaphor everywhere as i said at the very beginning today we see metaphor we see image we live as an artist an artist of our own lives that's a good way to age so that when we you know we've done now i'm talking about Aging as growing older a little bit now. As we get older, and we complain that we can't run as fast as we could before, we can't do as much, we get tired faster, things like that. Well, you can look at it as a weakening that we can't do what we used to do. But now we have an opportunity to do less, that's pretty good. (laughs) Now we can paint, we can read, we can watch movies. I mean, that's what I do probably. I, I think i just continue watching movies for a long time. If I got to that point where I couldn't come to Chicago. It's, there are opportunities in getting older that allow the soul to come to the foreground. This is really one of the secrets of aging. To see it as an opportunity to live a more soulful life to let the thing, matters of soul take prominence where before we were so busy doing things. It's an opportunity. Take it. Okay, now one more sentence, uh, phrase or two from Ewing, and then we'll have a conversation about these things. He says, In the years when I was pursuing my inner images, no, he says, the years when I was pursuing my inner images were the most important in my life. In them, everything essential was decided. Wow. So he's saying those moments when he was there out by the lake making little villages out of blocks and sticks and stones, most important moments of his whole life. Everything was decided then. Everything was decided. So you could say, maybe the most important time in my life was not when I was working hard at my job. Maybe that isn't the most important time. Maybe the most important time is when you're playing a game. When you're playing, period. Maybe. The most important task, if the, your life of soul means anything to you, is when you're playing rather than doing something, rather than accomplishing something. But isn't that what the Dao De Jing says from China? It's, it's, it says that uh, you accomplish more by doing less. That's what it's about, so we're playing. Uh, uh, D.W. Winnicott says in his books that the essence of therapy is play. The essence of therapy is play. And he tells parents when they, he was his child psychiatrist, and he would tell parents when they bring their children to him and they want him to figure the child out and make them better, he would sit down on the floor and play with them. And he'd invite the parent to join them sit down on the floor and play and the parents thought this isn't what i brought my child for is this the kind of psychiatrist i want to work with but this this was his idea very one that he really stuck to that uh, the most important aspect of therapy is to play
0: This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non Commercial, No Derivatives License. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.